2: California, and Texas, and New York, and we're going to South Dakota, and Oregon, and Washington, and Michigan, and then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! Welcome to Election Shock Therapy. Um, here from Bethel University, I am Chris Moore, an Associate Professor of Political Science, and to my right
0: is Andy Bramson. I'm an Assistant Professor of Political Science.
2: I'm Mitchell Crum. I'm also a Professor of Political Science.
3: And I'm Sam Mulberry, and I teach in the History Department here at Bethel.
2: And welcome back. We have uh, just a couple housekeeping things uh, before we dive into this week. Uh, On this week's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about polls and uh, what to to make of them and how to make them and how they get made. We're also going to be talking a little bit about um, what we can expect coming up here from the two campaigns and thinking a little bit about um, truth, falsehood, and truthiness and how that impacts both candidates and what they're saying to us. So, um, first, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, you can always get a hold of us, ask us questions. Uh, I, the best way to get a hold of us is our web, our, our email address, which is electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. look forward to hearing from you there. Uh, you can also uh, come see us live. Yes, we only have three episodes under our belt, but we're doing a live show. Uh, we'll be uh, um, a live recording um, from the Bethel University Library on September 20th at 1010 in the morning. And uh, we'll be taking some questions from the audience and talking a bit about what, uh, uh, what, uh, what civility in the election means uh, for, uh, for people who are thinking about voting and participating in this election. And um,
1: with that, uh, gentlemen, um, what's going on this week? Uh, this week we've seen uh, <clears throat> a couple of interesting things. So first of all, of course, uh, over the last couple of days we had Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton exchanging fire. Uh, sort of a pre uh, debate debate, uh, such as it is, I think one of the things that this uh, illustrates for us is that is, is that we 're finally moving into the finals finally moving to the final stages of this of this campaign um, it 's not the beginning of the end but it 's the end of the beginning yeah it 's the end of the beginning, and uh, one of the things that I think this this exchange also uh, illustrated for me was that was that Trump. Does seem to have finally sort of found the the way he wants to approach this. He was sort of floundering there for a while, but he seems to have finally settled into uh, his you know what what looks like it'll be his strategy for the for, for the end here, which really um, mostly looks like the strategy that he's used all the time. So all of the talk about sort of <laughs> softening or you know, at least as far as the rhetoric goes and sort of uh, you know trying to sound more presidential or anything like that just looks like it's it's not it's not going to happen. This is this is just who he is, he's, and he's going to be who he is.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And it did strike me how how little he changes his approach despite the many sort of encouragements to him to do that. And, it, you know, a lot of really smart people are saying that, you know, if, if Trump wants to win this election, he needs to make it about Hillary Clinton and about her negatives. Um, he needs to be more disciplined. And so it's not clear he can do that. And so we'll see if he can win it his way. Um, you know, it was interesting. I read a ABC News art, uh, interview that they, they had with him and with Mike Pence. And so Trump is just, you know, classic Trump kind of all over the place. And Pence keeps, you know, sort of bringing it back, whatever it is, to Hillary Clinton and focusing. Um, So we'll see which of those narratives kind of uh, wins out with the voters.
2: Well, I want to talk about the way we kind of capture this uh, as political scientists. What we've been paying attention to maybe too much over the last uh, months leading up to this point, because really we haven't had a lot of time to really see these candidates in action. Trump is is talking a lot. He's giving he's giving his version of a stump speech. Hillary Clinton is talking less. But in this last week, she my uh, my big takeaway from this last week is she gave basically two different uh, uh, pressers, two different press conferences, uh, which has been unusual for her. The, The press has been saying, why isn't she talking more? Why isn't she addressing things? And we've talked a little bit last about why that might be the case. But so in the absence of direct debates, which we're going to see here in the next couple of weeks, uh, what we have instead are polls and lots of polls, lots and lots of polls. And uh, I want to talk a little bit with you guys um, today, thinking about uh, for those of us, those who are listening, who maybe are trying to sort of make sense of this, how polls get made, how polls differ from each other. And a little bit about... uh, um, Uh, How we can then how we can best interpret these? So, um, uh, I'll ask Andy. He's 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 rocking the mic right now. Um, Andy, what's the difference between a state poll and a national poll, besides the obvious?
0: Besides the obvious, well, I mean, I think the important thing to know about state versus national polls in terms of thinking about the election, right, is that uh, obviously, anytime you see a national poll. Um, that shows, you know, that Hillary's got this percentage of the vote and Donald Trump's got this percentage of the vote. Um, It's interesting in terms of reflecting what Americans are thinking, but it's not terribly helpful in terms of thinking about how the election is actually going to turn out right because ultimately you need to look at those state polls um, because this does come down to the electoral college right so the votes of the individual states and as we you know saw back in 2000 for example it is certainly possible to win the popular vote in the country and actually lose in the electoral college um, Al Gore won more votes than George W. Bush but George W. Bush was elected president um, so that's sort of one of the significances of the state poll um, and then you know with the state polls I mean And and with any of these polls, really, I mean, I think one of the things to watch that we should just sort of say right off the bat is – that margin of error. So I hear, you know, when you hear like the really hardcore people on the right or the left, anytime a poll comes out in favor of their candidate, they want to, you know, trumpet it and talk about how great this is and that their candidate is now winning. And a lot of times they're, what they're doing is they're talking about polls that are really within the margin of error, which means it's close enough that we don't really know who's ahead. I mean, any poll is going to have some error in it. You, there's a random chance that you, you know, some somebody got chosen or to be polled who isn't representative. And so basically if you see a poll that's like 48 to 46, um, percent with a margin of error of three percent, it means either candidate could be ahead.
3: Is three percent kind of typical for margin? Like like because you typically um, if you're somebody who's not digging into this, you might not even right. see the margin of error. So like what is the what is a, a gap that is a significant gap? That, yeah, that might be outside of that margin, of error. right?
0: And, and usually, if you look closely at the poll, you will see margin of error or (MOE) something like that, and they should show you a sort of plus-minus um, in, in a number. It's usually going to be anywhere between one and four percent with a, a reputable poll, and it's really based on um, sort of the number of people that they polled. And so, the more, basically, the more number, the larger the number of people they pull, uh, the more, the lower the margin of error gets. And so, if you get these really like thousands of people being pulled, you'll get it down to one percent. Um, if it's like 400 people, then it's going to be more like so,
3: so typically when we see uh, state polls or national polls, how many people are we really talking about compared to what the actual electorate is and compared to what the actual voter turnout is likely to be? I mean, how how big of a, of a sample do we need before we feel it's reliable? Um, and, yeah, the, that, that sort of pollsters trust that.
0: Usually, and, and Mitchell and Chris, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I I think 400 is about the minimum you're ever going to see them pull, um, and that for gets you for a state you, or for a national. Well, really for either, but right. especially uh, more for states. I mean, that's I'd say good, especially but, for states. But for national, they're, gonna go they're usually going to go much higher yep. because it's just hard to get a really good random sample. The key with any poll is the sample has to be random, right? And the other thing you have to look at is sort of what is the composition of the poll. So even if you get a random poll, but you get randomly pulled, you know, 90. percent Whites, right? I mean, that's not going to be reflective of the country as as a whole, right? So you got to make sure that your randomness also sort of samples
3: effectively or appropriately from different groups. Sure, and I I realize you're not a pollster, but I'm asking a bunch of polling questions. But, but like, like how how do they achieve a random sample? And when I see a poll, is there is there usually ways I can dig into the demographics of that poll? I mean, or or is it more knowing the polling firm or It it is partly about knowing the polling
0: firm and that whether there's a way for you to dig in or not depends on the polling firm, how much they decide to release. I mean, because they they don't, I don't think they always release exactly how they broke this down, Um, you know, especially, and and that's why some people get suspicious of certain polls, right? Especially if it comes from a polling group that leans left or leans right, Um, they might have an interest in sort of, you know, having a poll favorable to their candidate. Um, I feel like there was a question I wanted to address in your first part, but I I'm
3: forgetting uh, how do they achieve it, a random sample? Oh, yeah, sample?
0: sir, a random sample. So, And that's becoming increasingly challenging, challenging because the old answer was that you randomize phone numbers, right? I mean, you go through the phone book and you can, can randomize this, and you can um, call people, and then you can achieve a random sample. And the problem with that is so many people have unlisted phone numbers now. Um, phone books aren't very good. So, for example, during the primaries, you know, we had a real polling fiasco in Michigan where Hillary Clinton was supposedly going to beat Bernie Sanders handily, and it turned out he won. Um, it was a massive sort of you know polling fiasco because they really um, sort of miscalculated, and part of the reason was they were they were sampling the wrong people. They were calling people on landlines. And those people were disproportionately older and more likely to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, they weren't calling people who had cell phones. And those people were disproportionately younger and more likely to vote for Bernie Sanders. So, so it's, a, it's a challenge. And, I'm, and as you said, I'm not a pollster. So I, I'm actually not sure what the sort of best wisdom is right now in terms of how they're solving that problem. It's a good question. Mitchell, do you know anything about later developments there?
1: Uh, I mean, I think the main the main development here recently has been just finding ways to incorporate cell phones and finding ways to actually call. Call cell phones, and I, I'm not again. I'm not a pollster either, so I'm not sure what all the logistics are. But I know that that um, creates a lot of additional headaches. And um, they used to not be able to do it because you had to pay for the cell phone call, and so that was something just like uh, you know you weren't just, just just like uh, ad uh, telemarketers aren't supposed to call you um, on your cell phones for that reason, and for the same reason pollsters generally weren't. But uh, that's that's obviously changed here in the last few years.
2: There's a couple other attributes to polling selection effects, Sam, that can affect uh, randomness. And part of them deal with um, how we get a hold of people at respondents, um, including cell phones, is something that some pollsters do, but not all. Some just use landlines, and that produces possibly a systemic effect away from uh, undersampling people who don't have landlines. Um, others uh, go away from phones entirely. We've seen a rise in this election, particularly of online polls online polls typically in the past have been looked at, um, with a certain amount of derision. Uh, they weren't seen as nearly as accurate as, as telephone polls. Um, but in some ways now we're seeing that there might be certain advantages to online polls. Uh, One of the things we are concerned with is a Bradley effect and the Bradley effect refers to the idea that there might be certain kinds of political opinions or feelings you might have that you might not reveal to someone who you're talking with directly on the phone, even a stranger. Uh, Bradley refers to uh, an election where, um, uh, an African-American candidate um, uh, got higher polling numbers than they actually got in the general election. And the thought here was that people didn't want to tell a pollster that they weren't going to vote for candidates simply because they were black. Um, and, uh, and that might happen in other, in other kinds of opinions or other kinds of ways, too. Then maybe you might be more honest on an online poll than you would be talking to a real person. I would say the other thing that I, want to, I think we should pay attention to in polls is exactly who we're trying to poll. If it's a truly random sample of, of Americans calling on phone lines, what we might get is just a general population survey. Right. But that not, not, might not be particularly useful because the general population doesn't vote with any regularity in the United States. So instead, what we probably should look at is people who are more likely to actually show up and vote. There's two ways to do that. One way is to say, are you a registered voter? And if they are, chances are they're more likely to vote than if they're not registered to vote. But even more likely is to kind of try to assess how likely the voter they're likely to be. We could just straight up ask people, are you likely to vote? But Again, if they're not willing to be honest with us, they're probably say, likely to say, yes, I'm likely to vote, even if they're not. <laughs> so then we might ask them some kinds of proxy questions. Did you vote in the last presidential election? Did you vote in the last congressional election? And use those responses as a means of assessing whether or not they're likely to vote in the next election, too. And look, polling those people, which is usually what polls disclose as well, is um, perhaps a more accurate like, uh, assessment of the outcome of the election than just polling the general population.
3: So this is my first election where I'm really into polls, and I think I can thank Nate Silver and uh, people like that because there's just Aww. lots of great. Um, <laughs> once again, <laughs> there's just lots of great. There's lots of great stuff. So like, I find myself one of the first things I do when I come in is I, I go to uh, 538.com com and I look at their their polling model. You know their aggregation of polls. Um, uh, how helpful is that as a – how helpful is something like that to kind of thinking about the elections, this idea of kind of aggregating polls? And um, is this something I should be looking at every day or is that a little obsessive or you know, maybe I just need help here?
0: <laughs> You're in a room of people who aren't going to be helpful about not being obsessive about politics probably. But,
3: but I, if we're going yeah. to be obsessive about the right
0: kinds of things. That's right. That's right? right. I do think silver and people like that or the the real clear politics, the RCP average are helpful because what they do – is they kind of show you what the overall trend looks like. So instead of having sort of these... Any individual poll might be weird and might have done something where they weren't quite as, you know, they didn't do a random sample as well as they should have or that they were, you know, biased in the way they asked certain things. And when you sort of look at the aggregate, you get to that smoothed out a lot. And so I think that, you know, for example, right now what I'm seeing is general trends is that this race has definitely gotten closer, um, that Trump is getting closer to Hillary. On the other hand, even though he's ahead in certain individual polls, I think she's probably still ahead by about two to three points. Um, so she's still got a lead overall. Uh, and we're seeing that with, you know, there's a number of polls that are falling in the margin of error. So he's up by one or two. She's up by one or two. But then we're still getting the number of polls where she's up by about five or six. Right. And so so I think overall she's probably around two to three. So those those kind of tools help you to see, you know, sort of uh, what's the, what the general trend line looks like. Um, and they, they get rid of the weird idiosyncratic results.
1: Yeah. And it's also it also helps. I mean, when you look at those aggregates, you know, you have to think about one of the things when you're thinking about polls is how many people are we talking to? And as with all random samples, even if even though randomness will give you, um, you know, if it's done well, a good snapshot, um, there's still the chance that you're getting something something weird in the way that people are asking. us, and So the aggregates allow you to essentially get a larger Sample, so you get more people um, that you that you've asked these questions to, or at least similar questions. And I think the other thing um, <clears throat> that kind of helps, and, and as far as your as far as your obsession looking every day right now, <laughs> um, which I, I do that as well. I mean, I look all the time. But one of the things one of the things to, to keep track of is uh, right now we're we're sort of in a in a dry spell in terms of the good polling. Um, a lot of pollsters aren't doing a lot of uh, extremely heavy polling right now and they will be resuming that um, basically in this month so Mm -hmm. if you really want to get a a good idea about where things are you know just hold on for another couple of weeks here until um, you know the top pollsters kind of kind of come back from from summer vacation um, and start and start doing their and start doing their thing a little bit more
3: is there also a a poll lag i mean so if i see if a poll comes out today that's obviously not responding to what happened yesterday like what it how long back like what What's the what's the um, the time lag that I should say? Okay, this poll is really talking about stuff that happened how many days ago?
2: For a national polling firm uh, that does a, a a national poll with maybe ten thousand respondents, that usually takes a couple days to collect, to tabulate the data and to publish it. So you're probably looking at events that happened that week, um, but maybe not that day. So if something if a, if a big scandal broke that morning and the poll comes out, you're not catching that. I did want to mention, though, since you mentioned looking at the polls every day, uh, there is a a kind of poll that's emerged over the last uh, couple presidential election cycles known as a tracking poll. And those work a little bit differently than the kinds of polls we've been referring to here. Uh, The kinds of polls we've been referring to rely on randomness. I call 10,000 random phone lines in America, try and talk to an adult. Um, not my four-year-old, and uh, and see what what their opinions are for the presidency. A tracking poll is a little bit different. You work really hard on getting a, a representative sample. So instead of random, you're saying, I want to have a sample that really looks a lot like America in microcosm or my state in microcosm, maybe 400 people or so. And then I'm going, to, I'm going to ask them every day or every week or regularly how their opinions are shaping up, how their attitudes are changing towards presidential candidates. And then I'm going to use that data to track those specific respondents over time and assume that their changes of opinion are mirroring the changes of opinion of, of that state or, that, of that, or our country.
3: But presumably those people know that they're in a tracking poll, correct? Because they're getting asked. And I remember this, this goes back to the 1980s. We were like a Nielsen family for like a month. And we had to like write down everything we watched on TV. And I remember consciously thinking about... Oh, I need to be more careful about what I watch because this is gonna this is actually this actually means something now. Is there I mean is is there an effect like that where somebody realizes I'm I mean because obviously if, if you're tracking if you're you do a tracking ball even of a thousand people, that individual person is ref, is meant to reflect a lot of human beings.
2: Absolutely. Uh, So we know that uh, we we should take tracking polls with a bit of a grain of salt because we, uh, in social sciences, refer to this as the Hawthorne effect. Uh, We talked about the Bradley effect, now the Hawthorne effect. There will be a quiz later, too. The Hawthorne effect is the idea that uh, your behavior will change just because you know you're being observed. Um, And so if these these people in these tracking polls know they're being observed, know they're going to be asked – even if it doesn't change their political beliefs, it might change how much they're paying attention to the news. It might make them more responsive to more minute news details and make them a little bit more um, stochastic or a little bit more uh, in their or random in their uh, the, the shifts
1: in their political
2: beliefs and feelings.
1: I just want to say, too, um, I was actually, my grandparents were actually picked up by Gallup for their tracking poll um, a few years ago. And what was interesting about that, and this kind of helps with the grain of salt for for tracking polls and and really any poll. I mean, you know, you always have to be a little bit careful, is that they felt like um, they didn't want to answer it. (laughs)
3: <laughs> and so
1: they didn't want to answer because they felt like they didn't know enough about politics. And I tried to tell them like you. That's you know, the point. <laughs> right. That's the point. You know, you, they just want to know what, you know, what, what, what folks who are a little bit older are thinking, like, like, you know, just folks like you. So you should go through and write it down. But they would actually insist that I come over and help them fill it out. And so. <laughs> so they were trying course, you instead. <laughs> exactly. And so, and so essentially, you know, what Gallup had for, for a number of months was, you know, some, you know, what they what they thought were some. Uh, at that point, you know, upper 70 year olds answering this, but really, you know, some of it was probably definitely influenced by the opinions of, of you know, a 20 year old college student. That's fantastic. And so, you know, so, and, and, and one of the things that I think that helps, helps us see is, you know, when, you know, it sort of builds on what Chris is saying here, you know, they were very self-conscious about what they were thinking. You know, mm-hmm. they they, they felt like they wanted to offer, you know, the right opinions or good opinions or informed opinions. And that really changed their behavior and their thinking about politics.
2: So I need to ask Sam and Mitch now, would you rather be a Nielsen family or a Gallup family
3: i th- I think I would go well well, Nielsen, I feel like I have more power over something um I don't know. that's a good question um probably probably gallop i think that would be that would that that that's what i would pick because nielsen's a lot more work because you really need to log everything you're doing and you th- think about every choice you make and it's yeah it uh it changes the way you consume media which we consume a lot of media so i'll i'll i'd rather be tracked politically than than uh how i consume pop culture i don't know what that says about me
1: yeah i think i think in terms of the time and stuff. Um uh, filling out the Gallup survey only took about 30 minutes, and it only came, uh, I, don't, I don't remember how often, but it was like once a month or something. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't that involved um, in, in, in those terms. But one of, the, one of the other reasons that I think I prefer the, the Gallup poll is, you know, as somebody who's interested in politics, you know, and, and I think we're going to talk about this later, but polls actually do have an uh, you know, impact on politics itself. And so I felt uh, as I was doing that that I was actually having, you know, some tiny little piece in the, in, in the larger process.
2: Well, I want to talk about one more thing about polls, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, uh, truthiness here in a, in a moment. But here's um, pollsters like Nate Silver that we've already mentioned. Andy? Oh, There we go. Um, uh, in, in addition to actually aggregating polls, which was one of Nate's big innovations, was the aggregation of polls yields a more accurate prediction than individual polls do is that he also takes account of some traditional economic factors. And here's where we get back mm-hmm. to the realm of political science. Um, because certain economic factors, the performance of the economy, unemployment rates, uh, job numbers, job growth numbers, um, and other kinds of factors tend to be correlated with certain kinds of presidential outcomes, generally either supporting right. the party of the incumbent president, Clinton in this case, or supporting the opposition party candidate, Trump, or or other things as well. And so some of the models that have been constructed by 538 and RCP right. and, and, and others um, take account of these economic factors in addition to polling numbers so when you look at some of these numbers that and we're getting a weird loop now because people like donald trump are actually talking about the polls as much as the polls are talking about him right and so um pay do pay attention is how some of those things also impact uh um the polls themselves they're part of these these election prediction models um New York Times, uh, um, Wall Street Journal, as well as, as five thirty eight all have these sort of percentage chance uh, outcomes that, yeah. you know, Trump or Clinton will win the presidency. A lot of those take account of some of these factors as well. Um, can we talk about truthiness?
0: Yeah. And maybe, oh, Mitchell wanted to comment on the polls.
1: I just, I just wanted to say one other thing. And, and this kind of gets back to what Chris was just saying about the reciprocal effect there. And that is one of the things that I think um, we need to think a little bit more about polls um, is what what role do we want them to play in our politics? Because you know, mm-hmm. we've talked about the way that polls um, are conducted and things like that, but especially this question of reciprocal effect. You know, if, if we think that polls are supposed to be there to help us predict, that's fine. But a lot of times what polls are doing now is they're actually being used as a weapon to influence who wins. And I mm-hmm. think that, that really sort of raises... Um, sort of a value or ethical question for us as to what kind of role we think they should play. You know, just because a lot of people like somebody, you know, just because Donald Trump is very popular, Hillary Clinton is very popular, does that mean that we should think of them as, quote-unquote, winning the campaign? Does that mean that they are, uh, you know, somehow better suited to be uh, the president? I think this especially also cuts, you know, in sort of a related way to media coverage. You know, should the media be focused on the polls? Um, is that where we want the campaign or should it be focused on the issues, the latest statements, um, policy positions, things like that? And so I and this kind of gets back to what Sam was saying to you earlier about being obsessed with the polls. You know, I think I think looking at the polls, you know, obviously, as a political scientist, I do a lot of looking at the polls, um, but. It's questionable as to whether that's the right focus, and I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that, you know, we should really be careful about is thinking about what's the proper use of all this data, you know, should and and, and should it matter as much as it does, particularly in media coverage, particularly as we think about who's winning and who should be winning uh, an election.
0: And kind of to segue into the, the truthiness portion here, right? <laughs> I mean, one of the things that strikes me, too, is that is the, there are the polls and then there are the things that the politicians say about the polls, right? And in particular, what Donald Trump says about his polls, because as you have pointed out earlier— He loves to talk about polls, and he doesn't always talk about polls terribly accurately, right? I mean, so, like, for example, in that ABC News interview I read uh, where he was talking about this, I mean, he kept referencing polls as, you know, we're winning in Ohio, we're winning in Florida. And it's like, well, actually, when you look at the aggregate, you're not. I mean, there are some random polls where he is, but the overall trend is very definitely that he's probably behind by a couple points, right? Or at best, he's tied, right? But he's definitely not clearly winning, and yet he keeps saying he's winning, and I mean, while that is not necessarily true, it is also not necessarily a bad strategy because the more people think he is, you know, you could build or a narrative where I jump this, on the yeah, jump
2: on board with the winner.
0: Right. I mean, perception is sort of, you know, co- connected to reality. Right. And so if the more people think, well, a lot of people are voting for Donald Trump. It must be a good idea. Maybe I will do that, too. Um, so it's actually I mean, you know, even though it's not truthful in one sense what he's saying, it may be a good strategy, um, as Machiavelli told us 500 years ago. Um, truth and, you know, uh, effectiveness don't always go together. (laughs)
2: Um, Well, let's talk about truth then. Uh, A couple years ago, maybe more than a couple years ago, uh, Merriam-Webster honored uh, Stephen Colbert, the comedian and now late-night show host, uh, with their word of the year. He uh, popularized and coined the term truthiness to mean (laughs) uh, something that isn't necessarily true, but sounds like it should be true and sounds good. Uh, It sort of has the qualities of truth without actually being true. And um, this sort of entered uh, sort of this third linguistic category known uh, in between truth and falsehood. And I read an interesting piece by James Fallows this week in The Atlantic, and I I wanted to pose this to the two of you. Um, Both of our candidates, um, major party candidates, Clinton and Trump, have been accused by each other and by others as well about... um, uh, a definite problem with holding to the truth uh Clinton in particular in relation to her emails and to the and to her relationship with the Clinton Foundation and who had access to that and Trump in relation to um, business deals that he 's made um, and other uh, uh, other uh, dealings he 's had and 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 uh, comments he 's made mm-hmm. um, how much does this matter? One of the things that Fallows said is that he believes there's a false equivalency between the falsehoods of Clinton and the falsehoods of Trump in the following way. Uh, the things that Trump has been accused of lying about, he really doesn't dispute and it's pretty demonstrable the things he's, he's lied about. He has in fact actually lied about. Right. The, the Clinton's falsehoods, it's more in the realm of allegations. There are allegations of impropriety, allegations of, of misdirection, allegations of, uh, of of impropriety. And for Fallows, this, he, he says that we're building a false equivalency between Trump and Clinton in terms of them being uh, being false. Do we think that's true? Is, is Fallows correct? But also, do we think that this is, a, is in fact, a false equivalency? So, so what he's
0: saying, if we can just be clear for our um, listeners, is that Trump is actually telling lies and Clinton is telling us things that the Clinton's alleged lies, to have been telling but lies, but maybe not.
2: Un- okay. Unproven lies on Clinton's okay. part, proven lies on Trump's part, and we're not seeing mm. that difference in the way the media is reporting the story. I mean, I guess
0: I, I agree to the extent that he, Trump's lies seem more blatant, right? In the sense that um, they're more blatantly false. You can sort of just look at them and be like, and you can you know hit Google and find out that no, in fact, this is not true. Clinton's require a little bit more probing. On the other hand, I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure I want to let um, her off the hook that easily either, because I, I, it is bizarre, right, that you don't know that classified emails were classified, um, and so even though it's it's harder to prove, it's messier, right? I wonder if the difference here is simply that we have a businessman who's not terribly, um, you
2: know, adept adapt at his concealing mouth, yeah. things, and
0: we have a a longtime, you know, sort of practitioner of politics uh, who is very good lawyer. at and a lawyer who's very good at sort of. Um, sort of misdirecting right and so I'm I don't know I'm not sure if I I actually buy the the distinction at some level I I agree that she's better um, at sort of concealing falsehoods but I'm not sure either of them is um, has been terribly honest Uh, it's just sort of a, a different variety but anyway I'm curious what Mitchell thinks about this
1: there's actually an interesting article, and I, I can't remember who the author is uh, off the top of my head, um, over at uh, First Things that wrote mm-hmm. an article about uh, basically uh, H- Hillary Clinton's style is that of a public informations officer. And so basically <laughs> she comes out sort of always in crisis mode where she will come out and say things that are certainly – true, you know, she's, you know, she's not like Donald Trump who comes out and says things that obviously aren't true, um, but that are in some ways also seem to be concealing something. Um, so, for example, you know, if you're in a crisis, you know, if you're the Food and Drug Administration and there's... A terrible disease. You know, if you're the public information officer, you come out and say, "Oh, we think that there have been, you know, that there's been contamination, of, and that and that and that mistakes have been made, or something like that." Which is all true, but you're not admitting guilt. You probably shouldn't not, have stored the spinach next to the hog farm, right? Yeah. And, you, yeah, and you're not actually coming out and saying where the errors are, what you know, what actually happened, things like that. You're just sort of, you know, sort of deflecting. And then, of course, you say something like, you know, "Oh, and we're looking into it, and we, you know, or, or we have sure. we have ten people examining this, or something like that." Um, and, you know, all of which is true, but doesn't tell you you know what they're doing, anything like that. And I think there's something to that. Now, to sort of take Hillary Clinton's side on this, I also uh, you know sort of go the other direction. Um, I think I think it's also I I, I think I think uh, uh, the the idea that Trump is is saying blatantly false things is also absolutely right. I think it's I th- uh, you know we. We have kind of gotten used to, in American politics, almost the the, the style of sort of deflecting uh, false information or, or, or trying to play it down. And Trump just doesn't do that. Sometimes he'll just say a lot of things that just aren't true. And I think to some degree that reflects, um, you know, something something about, about his voters. I mean, people who are willing to simply hear things that aren't even sort of, you know, uh, truthy <laughs> right. or or, or, the, or, the, or that aren't even sort of concealed um and still and you know and and that, and that are obviously false and yet still continue to um to support him and
0: yeah and i would just add to that I and mean, i think too, um you know that Trump has been very successful at telling these these lies. Right. Um, and so maybe maybe he's practicing truthiness. But I agree with Mitchell. I'm not, sometimes it doesn't even seem to rise to that level. Right. But uh, but he's been very effective at getting away this with sound this.
2: good it sounds. Like A lot of it does sound good. And that.
0: the reason it get, he gets away with it is he discredits the people who would discredit him. Right. So essentially he's been sure. slamming the media. Uh, throughout, which is ironic in some ways, because the media has given him all this free coverage, and in many ways, I think is responsible for his rise. But, uh, but you know, he he discredits them continually. He attacks the fact checkers, right? He attacks anybody who disagrees with him, and then and then he has just enough people, especially with you know the the the, the group that's going to be most sympathetic to him, that are defending him. People like Sean Hannity, uh, right, who are going to defend him, and you know, and so he points to those people and says, "See, these guys think I'm all right. See, they they're sure. backing up what I say. Um, it's just those you know the liberal mainstream media um, that is trying to attack me.
2: You mentioned the fact checkers there. And I'd like to bring this in because we talked a lot about polls this episode. But one of the other uh, new mainstays of the American electoral, right. electoral process are fact checkers. It's uh, been a
0: busy election for them.
2: It has. Um, I think they're probably <laughs> tired. Um, the fact checkers are these uh, firms. Uh, some, some of them are nonprofits. Right. Uh, some of them are, based, are are associated with media outlets. Who ostensibly are simply impartial uh, assessing the claims and statements made by various political candidates and assessing their validity or not. They should be. They are our truth tellers. Right. But there has now been a backlash against the fact checkers. And this goes as deep as what i thought would have been the unimpeachable fact checker which is snopes now just to mention this briefly snopes if you're not familiar with this is a website that dispels urban legends so if you're wondering if people are actually you know dusting the the handles of your uh cart of your shopping carts at walmart with pcp you can go to snopes (laughs) and find out if that urban, urban myth is true or not and surprise surprise it's not true right but um, even Snopes now is sort of being criticized by people who disagree with some of the claims that they, some of the fact checking they're doing. Others, other more prestigious firms like the Annenberg School, which right. is a journalism school, which runs a very popular fact checking site. Uh, uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times also have their own fact checking offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the candidates are not just. Uh, they're using these like they're using the polls, like Mitch talked about it a few minutes ago. Um, they're using these sites to say like, "Well, see, look, they're they're saying my candidate's a liar. They're saying or they're saying my yeah. opponent's a liar. Yeah. They're saying that this isn't true." And they're 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 sort of uh, they're picking and choosing on these things as well. So, mm-hmm. um, fact checkers, which used to be sort of our way of assessing candidates, are now becoming part of the political process.
0: Too. Yeah and that's that's an interesting evolution because in in 2012 you know it strikes me that the candidates would try hard to make sure that they were doing okay by the fact checkers right i mean they would try to clarify with them and and you would see them adjusting the way they put things mm-hmm. to try to get better rankings from the fact checkers right? right so i mean like even if they wanted to keep using attack lines that weren't technically true they would you know try to sort of reconfigure them so they were more true or, um, so tecni- were, or technically were, true yeah or... technically true right more in keeping with truthiness i suppose right but um in this election it's just been Let's instead just attack them. Right. When they they give us, you know, four Pinocchios, as Mm -hmm. PolitiFact likes to do, for example. right? I mean, you just you attack the fact checker and you say they're they're part of the people who are opposed to me. Right. And and both Trump and Clinton have been inclined at times to um, or quite often really to sort of think that there's a huge conspiracy against them. Right. Um, And to think that people are have it. In for them in the sort of the establishment, right? And so, so was, they both kind of attack.
2: Was PolitiFact one of the the site that gave actual ratings of honesty to all the candidates during the primaries? It may, have been. That was I very don't remember. Striking. Yeah, but. Um, and uh, this may rub you the wrong way depending on your partisanship. But um, basically, they said that the two prominent. Uh, Democratic candidates, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, were two of the least dishonest. I don't want to say I right. want to call them honest, no, but the no, least dishonest uh, candidates. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I believe, was the was rated the most honest. He's put right. the least number of whoppers and the least number of sort of misdirections. And Clinton was, was right. pretty close behind him. Trump was one of the least honest. Period. Out of all of the candidates. I think um, he was least. Uh, he was close to. I can't remember if he was yeah. near the top or whatever. And, and, and there were some. There were some Republicans who were close to Clinton and Sanders. Yeah. People like Kasich, uh, right. and, and uh, was 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 quite close to them. But. Um, it lined up in pretty, in a pretty uh, striking partisan fashion i 'm sure if you 're a Democrat, you love that how that looks right, so if you 're a right. if you 're a republican you 're probably thinking of ways to dismiss it out of hand
0: right and it feeds the narrative right i mean that these people are part of the liberal establishment sure um, which makes it easier to dismiss fact checkers right. right. in general if we right. think
2: that they're if they have it in a bag for right. one candidate or the other anyway yeah, yeah. well um, let 's transition to um, uh, we have a few minutes left here. And um, I, I, I'm going to try and talk uh, my two candidates here into. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to analyze them a little bit and try and see if they'll, if they believe me in terms of how they vote. So I'm going to ask you, I ask the two of you just to reflect a little bit. When you step into the voting booth, when you close the curtain, you get ready to cast your ballot. What goes through your head?
1: Uh, usually, when I've voted in the past, I mean, I, I actually write up like a little thing because. Um, I, I found I found, as I started being a political scientist, people would ask me how I was voting, and so I actually just started writing it down and I would give like a paragraph explanation um, and i would I would send that out i 've I've done that for the last few years actually and so usually when i when I look at things um, you know as, as a political scientist, I know subliminally what 's probably going on um, for most of it, but you in, you know, in your own head or in, in, my, in, in my own head okay yeah. 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 And, cool. and, and in probably most people's heads but um, but you know, but I, I, sort of start with sort of assumptions about what I, what I think are the most important issues and basically where to, where do candidates stand on that? What are they, you know, whether I think that they are experienced and qualified and, you know, sort of all the nice things that we like to think, uh, democracy is all about. Now, whether that's actually what's going on is, is, is another good question. I know that that, um, you know, despite what people say, that's not usually what, what, mm-hmm. what really determines, um, your votes. So I don't know if you want to. Anymore to that. I mean, you know, obviously obviously as as with everybody, you know, I, I know that I start uh with a partisan bias. Um, sure, and that generally speaking, you know, my assumption is that I'm voting for a candidate of one party um first and then I'm sort of looking for reasons to not do that. You know, are there any reasons why I don't want to vote for mm-hmm. the candidate of my preferred party and then um go from there? So that's more of the um underlying assumption, uh despite what I what I probably tell myself. Um
0: yeah well and, and I think I mean that fits with sort of you know one of the reasons for parties right and for ideologies for that matter right is that they they basically help you know sort of cut down our information costs right so sure. um you kind of know going in like these are the, the basic issues that I you know th- think think are really important and I know that this party generally agrees with me more on these issues than the other party. Right. I mean, we do tend to think of the two major parties because we think they're going to be the ones who win. Right. And sure. Some people are not going to do that, but most people do. Right. Um, and maybe we, sh- we should talk another time about why we always end up with two parties. But um, but, you know, with the 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 two party system. Right. You tend to no, I, you know I I gravitate more toward the Democrats or toward the, toward the Republicans. Um, and therefore, you kind of start, as Mitchell said, with those people. Um So, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's more or less um, how I approach it. The other thing I'll add is sometimes with elections get so complicated in the United States because we we vote for so many offices. And so I actually sometimes don't vote for certain offices just because I if I cannot figure out. I
2: mean, you don't vote for those district court judges.
0: That right. You... I don't vote for the district. I mean, like I remember when I was lived in Indiana. Right. There was like the the watershed board or something like that. Right. And I was like, what do I do? It was a hot this, race right? that year. I the yeah, watershed board. And you could Come not on. find it on Google. (laughs) I mean, like I Googled these people, and you couldn't find them. I asked a local friend who had lived there for 40 years, what's going on with this board? And and they couldn't explain it to me. And so I finally decided, you know what? Somebody must know who these people are and what they do and whether they're well-qualified, and I'm going to let those people make the decision. And so I just didn't vote for those offices. So, I mean, occasionally I end up having to do that. But for the most part, I try to um, figure out what's going on with every race Mm -hmm. and, and vote for that. And, you know, and you know, come to the best conclusions possible. But, um, yeah, I agree with Mitchell. I start with a certain bias toward, you know, one party that I tend to agree with more often. Um, but, you know, I don't vote straight ticket because um, I am going to look at the individual candidates and see if they're qualified and if, you know, they're they're suited for the office they're pursuing. And and sometimes the the issues that I think, you know, should line up with one a candidate, of one party um, are actually more complicated. So
2: it doesn't always work out that way. Well, you two sound very reasoned and rational and thoughtful about this. We're and, political scientists. And I think I'm here to tell you that I think you're just both weird. <laughs> um, That's probably true. No, in all seriousness, I there's uh, some of my studies that led me, lead me to conclude that voter behavior is just, um, for many of us, is can be r- ridiculous in terms of how... Um, what little things lead us to vote for can- one candidate over another right. and you were talking about you know the watershed board and uh, unfortunately we do have some good data that suggests that if if, if if people who are in the voting booth don't know anything about the two candidates running for a city council position or school board position or something like that they'll often vote for a candidate on very inane reasons right. this is one of the reasons we randomize the order of candidates appearing on the ballot because pe- we know that people who are listed first tend to have an advantage Right. Um, we also have People who have classically names that sound wealthy have an advantage, and yep. names that don 't sound like an ethnic minority have right. an advantage so so Paul Anderson has a better chance of winning the winning the election uh, than Enrique Gomez does right. And, and that's a problem in America. And that's mm-hmm. a problem, especially if we have low information voters. And that's one of the things that political scientists often think about is how much information are voters actually dealing with? To say nothing of the watershed board, um, how much do people actually know about Trump and Clinton? How much do they actually right. know about their member of Congress or their local mayor who probably has more of an impact in their daily life than, than the president does? And so um, – and we're nearing the end of this episode, but uh, one of the things we probably ought to return to is thinking about how voters actually sort of process information and how they make <laughs> yeah. some of these decisions. And there are a lot of political scientists and think about sort of the Phil Converse rational voter kind of crowd here, the Michigan model of voting, which suggests that most of us inherited our partisanship from our parents. Uh, most of mm-hmm. us uh, use that as a crutch to make put voter decisions on. And um, we don't get a whole lot of very far past that point. And is that a problem for the American democracy? If it is, can we do anything about it?
1: You know, I think what's interesting, you know, when, when I, you know, I, I also lived in Indiana for several years. And one of the things that's interesting did about Did you also vote on the watershed board this year? I did not vote on the watershed board, although I did have a uh, sort of uh, similar experience with a few of the just sort of very local um, elections there. I, I you know, since I just moved there, I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, but one of the things that's interesting in Indiana, and I, and I think a number of other states have this, is they have a button on the electronic ballots now where you can just vote a straight party ticket. Sure. And I think a lot of people do that. A lot of people who don't know much will just go in and simply punch that button, and they feel like they don't have do to do you think that's a bad, you know, bad thing? So is that a bad thing? Yeah, um, on the There are sort of um, – uh, on, on, on the one hand, I want to say no. I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, and so maybe I'll play devil's advocate here in favor of the – um, in favor of the uh, in favor of the ignorant un- voter, un- uh, the, the ignorant voter. Yeah, I'll sort of I'll sort of be uh, the uh, the uh, Schumpeter here. So basically, <laughs> if you uh, basically the idea is, you know, most people aren't going to have enough information anyway. Even if they go out of their way to try to get information on on things, and they spend you know an afternoon, even or you know, or even if they're paying attention most of the time, they're still not going to have. Uh, an enormous amount of information if we talk to them and be able to make these decisions um, very well. And so the people we should be looking to are elites. And yeah. we should uh, want people to simply follow the lead of elites who know a lot and spend a lot of time looking at things. And by elites, and you mean? By, by elites, in this case, it would be party leaders. So we would sure. say, you know, people who are high up in party organizations, um, who are good at, you know, either vetting candidates or, you know, or at least are more engaged in the process. Or should be. Or should be, anyway. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and, and of course, also, you know, major, major opinion leaders, you know, so I'm somebody who simply listens to, you know, X person, you know, whoever that happens to be, you know, I'm somebody who listens to Paul Ryan, or I'm somebody who listens to, um, you know, whoever else, you know, fill in the, fill in the news person, Harry Reid, Harry Reid, yeah. Yeah. Um, And, or, uh, yeah, and so so whatever they say, I I basically follow. And and essentially, you know, the argument for that is, you know, that if you do that, you are going to be making more intelligent choices than if you tried to use, you know, your own limited information. And 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 abilities on that. And I and I I do think there's something to that, you know, as somebody, you know, as 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 I talk to people about politics, I'm always struck by oftentimes, you know, how little people have actually thought about this stuff, even people who pay attention, just how little they have considered sort of the deeper implications of politics, what this could mean for the future, all of those sorts of things. You know, it really comes down to a lot of truthiness, a lot of, (laughs) um, you know, ill-considered values, things like that. Um, And so. Uh, and so, and so, and so—that's sort of my pitch for the for the uninformed voter. That basically, okay. it's it's not a bad thing that people are just relying on these heuristics and, you know, their partisanship and the and the major people around them.
0: Yeah, so I'll I'll offer a little counterpoint to that in the sense that um, the question, of course, is I mean, even if Mitchell's right, and I and I actually am inclined to agree that you know it's better if they follow the more informed um, leaders. Right. Uh, the problem is, of course, are the, those informed leaders really the ones picking the candidates? And I would argue that. Mm. Increasingly, the answer to that is no, right? I mean, clearly, for example, Donald Trump was not the candidate that Republican elites would have chosen, right? Nobody sure. really wanted Donald Trump to be Enough the Republican nominee. There was nominee. a stop Trump movement. Right. There was a stop Trump movement. They tried lots of things to make this happen. It did not happen. So, so in effect, if you go in and vote for him, Right. Then, you know, you're not voting for the leader. The Republican elites chose. Right. Um, and I think this is true in other races, too. This is the first time in recent memory that this has happened with their presidential nomination. But it's hardly the first time it's happened with a nomination. Right. Um, the Republicans have nominated, for example, some disastrous Senate candidates over the last few years. Um, and, the, and the Democrats have done this, too. Right. This is not it's not a Republican issue only. Um, the elites don't always succeed in getting the person they want in. Um, and as a result, then, you know, when you vote that straight party ticket, I mean, you may be voting for the sort of accumulated wisdom of the, the party elites and you may not. The other thing that where this breaks down a little bit, too, is um, people don't trust the party elites increasingly. Right. There's an there increasing skepticism yep. of elites in both parties. Right. I mean, who are rigging things for, you know, the stop Trump or rigging things for Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. Sure. Right? Um And so. So yeah, I don't know when they check that box. I mean, is it just laziness? Is it trusting the elites? I mean, what's going on? I'm not. I'm not quite sure. But I, I guess I would prefer to force them to go through the ballot and vote. And if you can't be bothered to do that, then you know maybe you shouldn't be voting for the local elections or whatever sure. because you don't really know what those people. If you don't know for. what it's for, yeah. for.
2: sorry. What I'm hearing from the two of you is that. Um, in an ideal world, everyone would be politically astute, well-informed, and artic- and, and thoughtful on all of the voting issues. But because right. they're not, maybe it's better to rely on um, party elites and parties to guide our voting preferences, as long as we're loyal to those parties. And what we might be in American politics now is the worst of all worlds, where we have a bunch of people who are not politically well-informed and also rather disloyal to their parties. Um, so with, yeah, uh, yeah. A, so in a sense, a bunch of sheep who are not well-guided by anything. Yeah. Yeah. On no, a not happy
0: note, we're coming to the end of our podcast. But maybe we should, I and mean, maybe we should talk about this at some point. The, we'll end with of some sad music today. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> dum dum dum.
2: Well, we'll we'll see if we can we'll see if we can redeem this with our next episode and talk about maybe some ways to think of how voters maybe actually a little bit more informed than we're willing to give them credit for. Um, I'll start. we'll I'll I'll try to bring you the voice of optimism next time because I think there's actually some things that we can be encouraged by. Uh, tune in next week Uh, we'll be back next Thursday and uh, for my colleagues here at Bethel University thank you for joining us and go Royals